0: To the Guru, the city is the territory of the Weaver. There she has spun a strong pattern of asphalt and concrete and glass and steel, trapping the humans in her web and using them to spread her influence. Each human being carries within them the seed of a city, and they may plant and grow it wherever they may find themselves. To the werewolves, this is a topic of contention that will surely never be resolved. Some argue that they should wipe enough of humanity out to ensure that no further cities are built, while others instead say that things can never go back to how they were, but that humans can be guided in the right direction. Regardless of their views, no guru is ever truly comfortable in a city, not even the Glasswalkers or the bone Bonnars. The city is not home to the guru. They are not New Yorkers or Londoners or Cape Towners. There are too many people, and too little space. The sounds, the smells, the sights, everything is designed to overload your senses, and the amount of pheromones in the air, the anger, the fear, the lust, is overpowering. For a wolf-born guru, it can be deeply traumatizing to enter the city for the first time. A homed guru may find the wilds unnerving, but their instincts will eventually aid them and bring them comfort. The city is, to the guru, deeply unnatural. Many cities are said to have patron spirits that embody the city, its people, and its history. These are called city parents, more commonly as city fathers or city mothers, and while there seems to be some discrepancy on how old or big a city needs to be for one of these spirits to manifest, they were not commonly known of by the guru until the late 1800s. City parents used to once care more about their people, but lately the cities themselves, the buildings, roads, and infrastructures, seem to be more valuable to them. Cities expand over time, one of the reasons the Garu despise them so, and most of these city parents likewise are overly concerned with this, often violently protective against any spirit or pharaoh who seek to hamper their growth. Contrarywise, some Garu packs have actually earned themselves a totem in a city parent, although the demand put on them is often quite strict, such as not being allowed to leave the city limits or to prevent any attempts to slow its growth. Understandably, these packs may be viewed with suspicion, even from their own septmates, for their allegiance to spirits so close to the weaver. The First City is a legend. As with all Garu lore, it is passed down orally, and its location and name matters less than its symbolic meaning. It was the first city constructed, and thus it was the first city. It came to be after the Impergium, when the Guru stopped their nightly terrorizing and wanton slaughter of the primitive humans, which allowed them to grow in numbers until eventually they gave birth to the first cities. This city is said to have been destroyed by outside forces, some thinking it was even the Guru themselves who did it, but that its destruction came too late. For as the city was destroyed, its inhabitants would travel far and wide, and they would give birth to more cities, who in turn would grow and spread further. This destructive event is said to coincide with the War of Rage, however, so it is quite possible that it was not the Garu, but some other force, that destroyed the city. But regardless of its cause, its destruction did little to deter civilization from flourishing from that point onward. And with civilization, so too would vampires prosper, their prey all easily accessible and in abundance. Indeed, where the Garu are unnerved by the pulse of a city's life, the leeches bathe in it, and vice versa. Few of the vampires dare tread outside their precious urban hunting grounds, and for good reason. The stench of weaver and often worm on them makes them prime target for the guru. One must, of course, remember that for the majority of the time humanity have lived in cities, they have primarily been centers of trading and rule. While larger cities have existed in history, not until the late 1800s did the population in urban areas begin to outnumber those living outside these nests of weaver influence. Indeed, only a few hundred years ago, the vast majority rarely, if ever, visited cities, and the guru had hardly any need for the same fear and suspicion of them. But times are changing, and they are changing fast. Guru live in the present, and in less than a handful of generations, the world has changed so fundamentally to them that few, if any, could have predicted it. With growing cities, so too would the weavers' power over the area strengthen, as would the worm. Corruption would seep in, feed on the weak and hungry, poison the heart of leaders and soldiers and merchants. It would become more and more difficult for the guru to hunt these bane-clung humans down, and for more servants of the wyrm would multiply, The leeches, meanwhile, would see no reason to prevent much of this corruption, as it provided them a reliable supply of food and power over mortals whose hearts were turned by greed or lust for power. It was with the Industrial Revolution that the city fathers and mothers would appear for the first time, as more and more mortals moved to these settlements to seek fortune. These poor souls were fed into the bottomless maw of progress, were chewed up by its machinery, and replaced when they were ground to dust. In the blink of an eye, the guru saw nation-states spring up. They saw the growth of corporations, of oil-drilling companies, of airplanes and rockets and nuclear power and so much burnt coal that the sky blackened by pollution. And with this progress, the Weaver's children literally exploded onto the umbra. Hundreds of different creatures of steam and steel, electricity, gunpowder and more burst forth and caused a massive change of balance. Some say that the industrial era was the beginning of the end. Others argue that the first city was. Yet regardless of when things began, with the beginning of the 20th century, the pharaoh would face foes wielding both the corrupting power of the worm and the insidious technological advances of the weaver. The weaver is in every brick, every power line, every cell phone and car and piece of clothing. Each human being produces massive influence for the weaver simply by existing and the Garu need to blame themselves for their blindness. They fought the Worm for so long, they forgot that without balance, their work has failed. None of the triads may be allowed superiority over another, and even the oldest tales tell of the Weaver's role in the Worm's fall. While many Garu will connotate skyscrapers with the Weaver's influence, neatly ordered suburbia with identical lawns, buildings and driveways likewise mirrors the soulless structural order of the Weaver. Even city parks can be homes to the spirits of the weaver, as the plants and wildlife there are rarely allowed to grow and thrive on their own terms, and a city council-ordained decorative flower pot has about as much of the wild in it as an Otalis shake has natural flavors. Another effect the weaver and its spirits have is that the gauntlet, the veil separating the physical and spiritual world, becomes stronger in accordance with how strong the weaver's presence is. Thus says, order, structure and efficiency clean up back alleys, bulldoze any buildings that don't conform to the standards set by the city's beauty council, and a herx is never further than a stone throw away, the city becomes more predictable, more clean, more dead. And any anomaly that does not conform will be removed with brutal efficiency. However, the weaver isn't the only one of the triad interested in influencing a city. The worm flourishes wherever corruption, decay and suffering is rampant, and most cities have plenty of that, whether it's the polished surface of Los Angeles, where the entertainment industry works like a meat grinder for talent, or the blasted out concrete housing estates that have long since been abandoned to a slow death by city authorities, its people left to fend for themselves as they have no value to the money grubbing public figures. The worm manifests in many different ways, the most obvious, of course, being by crime rates and acts of violence. Yet it is insidious in its nature, and the aforementioned suburbia can be a veritable hellscape under the surface. It's tightly constrained inhabitants indulging in dark and wicked deeds inside their homes to relieve the pressure of the daily grind. It is a fact that should a worm gain the upper hand, it is not unlikely that the city would suffer from it. While the Weaver would wish for the optimal living conditions to nurture growth and prosperity, the Wyrm would not care for such things, and a Wyrm-dominated city could easily fall into a spiral of despair and dystopianism. Or it would become an active tool for further corruption, run by a shadowy elite who nurtured the pain and suffering to build an army of Fomori to bring against Gaia and her servants. Just like the Hydra, the Wyrm's corruption has many heads, and if you remove one problem, two more will grow to take its place. Finally the wild has a presence in almost all cities as well, but one must know where to look to find it. It could be a single dandelion growing from a crack in the asphalt to an underground haven of rats, constantly multiplying and making its way into every building in the city, undermining its order and structure simply by being alive. Alone an agent of the will has little power, but it is within chaos and multitude that it grows, and the ratkin The shadowy werats are said to be the greatest champions of the wild. They will gladly undermine humanity's achievements, sowing destruction and planting renewal wherever they can. Yet undeniably, few cities ever become so overrun by the wild that they cease to be cities. Eru who live and operate inside of a city are called Ura by others of their kind. It is a derogatory term that means tainted ones, and while some claim it as a badge of honor, Others argue feverishly against this reluctance to accept that cities, and not the forests, are most likely where the battle must be brought against the worm and the weaver. Likewise, a city will often be referred to as a scab, and the analogy is a fitting one. It is not too hard to imagine that the oil, which is rendered into asphalt, covers all the greenery, like blood coagulates and covers the surface completely. Little grows there, and it feeds nothing. Food and resources have to be brought in, and nothing natural is produced. Money and power, most Garu would agree, is a human concept and nothing that Gaia has any need of. Some positive-minded glasswalkers or bone will argue that scabs are formed to help heal what is underneath them. Once when the cities have served their purpose, humanity might outgrow them and leave them behind. But this sort of thinking has little basis in reality, especially considering the exponential growth of urban areas. Indeed, it might even be dangerous thinking, as that would imply that cities help heal Gaia, when very little point to this being the case. Yet, regardless of one's views, it is an irrefutable fact that the Guru cannot ignore the cities or the people living in them. While attacking an oil field or a deforesting site may scratch that itch of doing the right thing, in the great scheme of things, it can be compared to putting a band aid on a tumor a tumor that consumes everything in its way and continues to grow as it pumps out its corruption. The four grandchildren of Cain wait patiently for the time of judgment to arise. Snow, wise beyond his years and powerful in his compassion, Bambi Parsons, a leader with an unbreakable will, Prozion, who has shed his weaknesses and has been reborn as a god amongst Cain's angels, and Dugal, whose thirst for blood is matched only by his strength of will. Their childer, the Methuselah, control our every move through their timeless jihad. They are her satanic majesty Danny, whose mere presence chills the heart. Socrates Johnson, a masterful craftsman of stories; Lauren Eason, a trustworthy ally and friend; and Alexander Kanehurst, inquisitive explorer of the world of darkness. On the council of the Primogen are seated Edward Reed, Colin Gifford, Zero Six, Ian Nichols, the Black Friar, Ravenfang, Brad Hardwick, Pilgrim, Ghetto Mathrox, Michelle Light, and the Autumn Alchemist. Wise leaders and of good judgment. This week, the council wish to thank the elder Gaslight88 for his continued loyalty and service to our cause, as well as the Ancile Idrin, who has remained a staunch supporter through times of peace and times of trouble. Naturally, all our elders Anciliae and Neonates receive our gratitude from the bottoms of our hearts. Without your support, this would not be possible. And thank you for watching. The full moon rises, and Gaia's warriors strike out into the night. Tremble servants of the Weir.